Hello and welcome back to Science Shambles, where you've been on a bit of a break, as you will have no doubt noticed, because there's not been any new episodes, uh, while various people have been on tours and whatnot. But we are back now. Robin's still on tour with uh, Professor Brian Cox all around the world. You can get tickets for those dates if you've not been already, wherever you are in the world, at briancoxlive.co.uk. And you can also find all of the other live dates that we're doing with Cosmic Shambles and Robin Solo as well at CosmicShambles.com or RobinInst.com, either of those. And while Robin is on the road, Helen Chersky is in the hosting chair for this series of Science Shambles. And in this first episode, she is chatting all things mathsy and puzzles and cricket, actually, with mathematicians and authors Rob Eastaway and Shambles regular Matt Parker. And then stay tuned at the end as well for a chat with Eve Cowley from Footprint Theatre, uh, one of the co-creators of the play Signals that uh, we are touring as part of Cosmic Shambles this year, going to lots of festivals uh, and beyond with that show. It's a comedy about radio astronomers and the search for life out there in the cosmos. So make sure you stay tuned at the end for that bonus chat as well. As always, patreon.com slash bookshambles to support everything we do at the Cosmic Shambles Network. And now here is Helen. Oh, simultaneous thumbs up from the production team there that was very impressive uh welcome to science shambles i'm standing in for robin ins this week i'm helen chersky and uh with me in the quite a warm little studio in bloomsbury i have got two mathematicians so this might be an hour where you have to pay attention uh we have got rob eastway who is a maths author and enthusiast and matt parker who is very well known to the cosmic shambles audience as a maths author and enthusiast very similar job titles, Rob. <laughs> yeah. I was just real. we're competing with each other, Matt. Well, to be honest, I've just based my entire career off Rob, so that's a... <laughs> you admit it's deliberate. that deliberate. It's deliberate. Yeah. I thought I saw you <laughs> lurking behind me. Right, so we've no shortage of maths uh, chat to have here then. Right, so... I let's start with so you that when you walked in when you walked in before Rob with uh, with a canvas bag and you pulled out a new science a new scientist out of it. Tell me what was in the new scientist that was interesting. Well, a new scientist uh, when I was growing up used to have a puzzle column called Enigma, and I in my youth used to be a setter of enigmas for new scientists, and then I sort of moved on and. The column itself got axed five years ago, but new scientists have just decided to reinstate a puzzle column. I th- puzzles they, are back. Puzzles are back. I mean, puzzles are generally in, and I thought, yeah, I, and actually, if it can break away from how Enigma used to be a little bit more general interest, the kind of thing that the journalists and new scientists themselves might fancy having a go at, little illustrations and stuff, then I'm in. So I'm sort of puzzle advisor now to new scientists. That's a cool job title. I do think kind of puzzles are coming back there, because I, I mean, I was... Um, uh, I have recently become aware through German friends that there is a whole world of board games that I wasn't, you know, I didn't really have, I didn't really grow up with that culture. And then once I've, I stepped into their world and went, oh, that's a lot of board games. German board games are like world leading. Yeah. I mean, they incredible. go to conventions of board games yeah. and they crowdfund board games so they can have more board games based <laughs> on the other board games. Um, but it's really interesting because that, I mean, I, I, I think it sounds to me as though that world is growing. In, and it's interesting because there's all this, you know, video games and virtual world and yet board games are still here. And puzzles, I, I guess, they're, they're kind of the best of both in a way. They're very... Um, I mean, it's not old-fashioned, except that the concept is mm. old-fashioned, but then people like them in the modern world. They haven't gone out... They've 
we still want them. We do. I mean, there was uh, one of the, was it that immense, no, it wasn't the mental book, it was, um, uh, tell me out, the Cheltenham people. Oh, well, someone. Jesus, oh, someone, someone did. Yeah. It was a mega, mega did really well. No one could do any of the puzzles. That's what they yeah, told me. Yeah, well, it's almost the, the old thing, it looks good to have these really hard puzzles in front of you. I sometimes wonder, what is it people most enjoy about a puzzle? Because I thought people enjoy them when they can do them, but clearly that was a case of, if they're really hard, just, you look clever if you're having a go at it. Uh, so yeah. puzzle. So, I mean, have you have you been a lifelong puzzle fan then? I think I have because I can remember when I was about ten and I had a teacher who would at lunchtime set us little, you know, lateral thinking puzzles, and I loved that. I mean, I, I don't like all puzzles, and I've grown increasingly Ooh, puzzle snob. Yeah, well, a bit militant about it because a lot of things get called puzzles that I think. Meh. Oh, where's I feel a controversy coming yeah. on here. Where, Tell us what a surpri- proper puzzle well, is. Well, okay. So well, actually, I, I, before I, I does that, because I enjoy math problems, but I'm not a huge puzzle person. Okay. And so I suspect anyone looking at myself and Rob from a distance are like, you do the same thing. <laughs> But yet, I think what I enjoy, Rob would not classify as a puzzle. So the Venn diagram yeah. is getting complicated. Okay, so Rob, yeah. tell us what your sort of proper puzzle is. Okay, well, I uh, I have three criteria for what I think is going to make a good puzzle. Uh, it's got to either have um, uh, an engaging storyline that makes you drawn in and say, oh, that's interesting because it's about a real-life situation or because, or because it's funny or something. So it's quite witty in its, in its setting. Or there's a really neat shortcut. So you look, oh, I'll never be able to solve this. It looks impossible. Or you spend three hours solving it. And then when you look next week at the solution, there's a thing that takes five seconds. And you think, oh, but it's really clever. Or there's a lovely surprise at the end. You think, oh, I wasn't expecting that. That's completely the opposite. Whatever. Any of those three... Uh, I think make for a good puzzle. If it has all three, it's brilliant. So it's a log- the puzzle is logical, but the setup, the thing that makes it appealing, is emotional. Yeah, is it, and it's a wit and a humour and a something about it that makes a good puzzle for me. And if it's routine, if it's solve this, you know, quadratic equation, whatever. I mean, people might call that a a puzzle, but it it we we all know how to solve that in a way, sort of like sort of like a Sudoku. Although I think Sudoku has an elegance to it that makes me think, okay, that, that counts as a puzzle to me because... So you know, if it's a procedure you can learn, it's not a puzzle? To some extent, yeah, because it is about thinking differently, I think, and thinking differently from how you've been trained to do. But, I mean, there are exceptions and there are ones that turn the handle. They're still, they're still witty, they're still clever or elegant, but, uh, yeah. So you're not a puzzle person, Matt? Is that a... Not, I enjoy puzzles because it's still... You don't have to. We'll still let you call yourself no, a mathematician, even if you don't like puzzles. I, don't, I enjoy puzzles, but I in prefer the um, the wildness, like the the rugged landscape of a mass problem where, where a puzzle, like Rob is describing, is kind of a crafted... I'm going to say work of fiction, which I mean as a compliment. Like someone has honed this thing. They know... In theory, all the ways to get from the beginning to the end, like a choose-your-own-adventure, and it's a pleasing, rewarding, curated experience. Um, and that's great. That um, is such a modern world thing to say, that a puzzle is a curated experience. The, really? <laughs> Welcome to the business. Yeah. I am shocked that you would say something like and that. Whereas, what I often enjoy is a mass problem, 
which, don't get me wrong, can be very well-trod territory. And so I'll often be working on a math problem where even though I don't know the answer or where it's going, it's probably been done many times before. And But yet that notion of I don't know if this will be a rewarding experience in which direction to investigate this that will be interesting or insightful or if there is a clever but a puzzle when suddenly you go, ah, I see what they've done. There's a clever way of thinking about this and reframes it and you get to the thing. And, and there will be, I mean, you and I are going to have this overlap of things. That's really elegant, whatever we call it. We're going to like similar things. We're going to go near about similar things too. So there oh, will exactly. definitely be. But, but yeah, the, the reaction you have, the feelings, you know, uh, provoked by these things are important. Yeah. But from a distance, we're like, it's like we're both into tennis, but I like playing on clay. And, and you're like, well, there's not not grass. Yeah. Is it really tennis, right? And so that's, you know. Well, as long as you're not actually fighting. I think there was um, someone said, I think it was about academics actually years ago, that um, they were vicious uh, about each other precisely because the stakes were so low. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, the, 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 as long as you don't get decide that your minute differences are going to make you start pulling, you know, hitting each other or something, that's fine by me. Um, so, uh, yes, right. What, moving on from puzzles, because there's a lot that we could clearly talk about that for a long time. Um, let's carry on with Rob for a second, because you were talking about cricket just before we yeah, came in. Yeah. What has that got to do with anything? <laughs> Other than the meaning of life. I'm a sports fan, yeah. but I, cricket is one of, the, it's one of the sports that I just... You know, if I if I wanted to spend a sunny day, a sunny afternoon, I've got other ways to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's my it's my dream of a Sunday afternoon. Like, like last Sunday, just out playing cricket with ten colleagues. Uh, it's a, a game played uh, against twenty one people because you're kind of competing with all the, with your own team as well, and yet you're all on the same side. But um, but from a mathematical point of view. Um, what is rather lovely about cricket is the numbers it throws up. And, of course, baseball throws up stats too, but there's something about cricket's whole numbers and the range of numbers it produces that produces pretty patterns and everything else. Not everyone views cricket from the statistical point of view, but I like it from that angle as well as every other angle. So I've always been drawn to it and, you know, observing, you know, Graham Gooch got 333. What an elegant score. To so have you ever, have you ever like, thrown a cricket game so you could be out on a nice score? <laughs> no way. I, my, I prize my wicket. So your, your cricket is va more valuable to you than your the, the, the number with I'm playing, yeah. But, but I've watched other people say, oh, I hope he gets out. Like there was, there was um, uh, England finished the day uh, on the... F uh, Pi approximation day, which is the 22nd of <laughs> July the other year, England scored 314. And we should say it's wow. pi approximation because it's a 22nd divided, oh, yeah, divided by so 7. So, yeah, 22 you, you, slash that 7. That ratio is approximately And their score pi. that day was 314. You know, I mean, it, it matters not, and yet many people... Just made everyone quite, happy. Oh, that, isn't that nice that it's just right? Um, and, and, and then I have another involvement with cricket, which, you know, my love of it... Uh, ended up me being asked to, uh, many years ago, uh, come up with a ranking for cricketers, because cricketers are rated on averages typically, but they're very flawed statistics. How can you compare, compare someone from one country to another? And I developed with uh, two others uh, what is now the official world rankings for cricket. So with a World Cup of cricket happening, they'll be flashing up on the Sky Monitor, you know, Virat Kohli ranked number one in the world, and we're all thinking, yep, that's our model there. Let's hope he... Does so can right you things. give away the secret? Like, what's the critical, what's the crucial thing in your 
will drive. I like. Is there a ranking of rankings? Uh, is there a meta ranking? For- well, there is. A, people people do say certain rankings are better quality than other rankings. With at the bottom of the tree, things like the FIFA football team rankings, which are very poorly crafted, and the wrong teams get. Oh, to the I top want to be in the so room on. when this debate is going oh, on. Oh yeah. Well, this. yes, yes, uh, yes. I'm up for that uh, that one. But anyway, ours. The the the, the, the sort of the cleverish bit about it is it's a weighted average, and there's two ways it's weighted. One is it's saying who do you score your runs against? Let's 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 weight up or down depending on it's a very strongly rated attack or a weak one. So each performance is weighted, but then it's also weighted with a bit of math I learnt when I was about seventeen called an exponential average, whereby what you did last week counts uh, a bit more than the week before and the week before, and it, it everything always counts but diminishing to zero. So what you did 10 years ago or 100 innings ago is almost nothing, but it still counts a little bit. It's a geometric it's series. Geometric, yes, that's right. And uh, we, uh, it, unlike, say, tennis rankings or golf, where things just drop off the end, so people are defending their points because it depends what they did at Wimbledon last year or whatever. In ours, you're not defending points. You're simply trying to defend or perform to your current rating. I um, was looking at the stats on my website the other day, and this is relevant. And I, I looked at like one month, and I had this huge increase, and it plateaued for a month and then dropped off. And I was like, what? Yeah. And I was like, then I changed the, you know, what time period I was looking at, and then I got the same kind of plateau over a week. And I went, I know what they're doing. They're just lumping everything into a category. And I had one particularly big spike. And as it moved in and out of different categories, we got this weird up-and-down effect. And I remember thinking, if they'd used the Rob Easterway method <laughs> of decaying the importance of something gradually over time, you wouldn't have this abrupt change. Oh, come and on. You are clearly going to leave this room and you are going to program those stats for your own website. Oh, I totally do. <laughs> and this was Google data as well, so I'm very yeah. surprised in their analytics. Anyway. But, but you know, what the public doesn't like with any ranking, any stat, is a surprise, a thing that's counterintuitive. And I remember it uh, sometime in the 1990s, the, the bla- uh, Stefan Edberg, tennis player, was ranked number two in the world, and he got knocked out in the second round by a guy who was ranked 300th in the world. It was his worst ever defeat. So they published the rankings at the end of the week. What happened to Edberg? He'd gone top. Why had he gone top? Because his awful performance against this guy displaced a not playing at all, I think, a, a year before. So he got some point. But... When he was playing at his worst, anyone could remember, that was the worst time to go number one, and a lot of flack for that. And these sort of surprises happen. You know, if anyone could be bothered listening, the people who invented that system would happily sort of say, oh, well, the reason it's really interesting, the way it works is this, and people say, nah, nah, it's nah. So people don't want to know how things work. They just want to see that it makes sense, and that's always our guiding principle with the, with the cricket as well in the end. No one ever, thank you for asking me today anything about it, because no one ever asked me how it works. But there's a thing, I mean, Matt here, about the, the maths in everyday life, right, and where it sneaks in, and you've just written the book uh, Humble Pie, which was a very, which had the most annoying page numbering I have ever seen. <laughs> I read your book Brilliant. and I couldn't get over the page numbers. It's tell backwards. me about, it's yes, backwards. they're backwards. And it, I cannot tell you how annoying it is to read a book and be on page 326 and then a little while later you're on 278. And I just, it, I just couldn't stop being annoyed by the page numbers. I was really pleased. With it. it took a lot of convincing to get the publishers to do that. Um, and entirely off the record, just between everyone who listens to the podcast, the US edition's coming out soon, and they're they're dragging their feet. They are worried oh, really? they will get complaints. Can we vote for the... Can we, like... I mean, I don't want to vote for... Like, it's one of those things that I... I 
intellectually, I totally appreciate <laughs> it, and I think they should have it. Emotionally, it was intensely irritating. Well, what I but I think it should seen, happen once. If, if this makes you feel better, because obviously I was immersed in the book for a very long time, and the page numbers back afterwards, that became the normal, reverse page numbers. And so when I saw I was on a page, I had to get to a different page, I'd go the correct way for my book. But it meant when I picked up any other book afterwards, I would instinctively go the wrong way when flicking through page numbers. And so I conditioned Good, so you myself. had to suffer for your I've idea. I've had to suffer. I approve so of So I've this. inflicted it upon myself. Um, but the idea behind the book was to look at uh, math mistakes in everyday life and the kind of how we use math, why we use maths, and when it goes wrong as being an um, opportunity to discuss the maths that's in the first place, which is why actually it's, it's not dissimilar to the rankings where people don't really care about the maths behind these rankings. I mean, they'd be upset if they didn't have rankings. Or they'd be annoyed if they had bad rankings, but once they're working fine, they kind of ignore the mathematics. And so only when you get a player suddenly jump in the wrong direction that people get um, emotional. And I had, because I got loads of stories from like um, programming and computing and engineering and finance and medicine. And I did in a very early draft have something about cricket um, in, the, not because I'm not a cricket person so everyone listening in spite of your accent who's not into cricket <laughs> i know and people strike up cricket conversations <laughs> with me particularly if like australia is playing england and i'm unaware of this and i can almost tell by the tone of my cricket um friends um no but so if you're listening i'm not into cricket i, I, I I'm, I'm you know bandwagon most sports but chatting to rob about some of these details and we've had long i i basically wrote up talking about Duckworth and Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the problem, problem, let me explain this and you can correct mm -hmm. me. Um, Maybe. So, so if you're playing cricket, one team goes first and they can be batting for a very long time and then the other team shows up and does their batting. But you play outside. And if it rains and one team gets less time, which, I don't know, they get, only get half a week instead of an entire week, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then you've got to compensate because now instead of aiming for the target of what the number of runs the first team you've got, you're like, well, you guys have only got three days instead of 17. Uh, we're going to scale this accordingly. But how do you then scale the target? And I was like, well, you just do it proportional to the time. And Rob's like, well, no, because you can order your batters on how good they are. And so it's not a linear run scoring and so how do you so the idea is so for those who are not cricket fans is that you put your best batters out first is that it mm. so that if you have time at the beginning that counts for a lot because your best batters might do quite well yes fortunately for the amount of time they've got Yes, I mean, it's, it, it won't tend to be on time, but it'll be on number of balls bowled, as would be the case in, you know, number of pitches in baseball and so on. But print in principle, yeah, it's beautifully explained. And yes, the thing is, people can can beat the system if uh, if they if they see it's going to rain. They say, yeah, we'll throw all our batsmen in. They'll take lots of risks because as long as they're all out, we we can say we won because we got half the runs in half the number of overs. And so, that, has anyone ever had not... a league that is that works like this then? Where where you are where your your score is scaled, depending on the conditions. I think cricket might be unique in this, is it? Yeah, uh, you, you get like a handicap. Oh, look at the pair of you. The yeah. pair, for those who are not in the studio, <laughs> which everyone, they've both got their arms folded. They're yeah. looking at each other. They are, they are about to settle into a good pub discussion. Yeah, chat was about to happen. <laughs> but but the, the thing is, uh, I mean, there's handicaps to balance in, handicaps in, in horse riding and stuff to balance mm. the odds. But the thing about cricket is that, you know, one team has a go, then another team has a go, and, and they may not get a full go. Whereas in 
golf, for example, one player goes out and it's not raining, another player comes out and it is raining, tough, that is life, and they just have to complete the round. So um, I can think of no other sport that has to account for weather shortening in that way. There may be some obscure... You know, Quidditch normally counts in this somewhere, okay. but I can't think even Quidditch has a quirky rule in that. Um, if you've got yeah. magic things, you can surely magic. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's right. yeah, that's true. Oh, yeah. they're, they're whole scoring systems. Anyway, yeah. um, so it's not good game mechanics, is what I'm saying. It's poor, yeah, I agree. Um, so uh, the, the issue is you can crunch the maths on this. Right? Yeah, so Duckworth-Lewis, yeah. there's a calculation where you can uh, arguably fairly compensate, except... This magic number just descends mm. from nowhere. Mm. And what I found super interesting is even though we can solve it mathematically in a very pure calculation sense, which is arguably fair, it's will the fans and the spectators and the teams and everyone else accept that number? And will it be a less rewarding sporting experience if it's just this it's, it's a loss of control. Sports fans, any fact, you like to feel you're in control of things, especially if it's something you think you understand. So when the system has come up with a system, or the system has come up with a method uh, of, of, you know, deciding what's going on and you feel you've got no control of that, you don't really understand how it's happening. But it's also it feels... you want it to reflect what you see, right? Because yeah. when you watch yes, yes, a game, yes. you appreciate yes. skill. Yes. And you, you know, and that's a subjective thing. Yes. You know, I'm yes. a badminton player. When I yes. watch good, ba good badminton played, I really appreciate what they do. And if the score, even without any word scaling, is out of kilter, yeah. that's what annoys yeah. me, yeah. I think. Uh, absolutely. So fairness and whatever else. So, yes. So, yeah, you and I were talking about ways of overcoming that um you know, making it more human, feeling that there was more control and this had been, you know, whatever. So how do you wait for humanity? I mean, well, is, that the is that the problem that maths now I faces? In order to get people to like you, you've got to add a human weight in. Human, uh, yeah, well, basically, yes. Um, let's not dig you've too deep into You've got to fudge all your beautiful, analogy. elegant maths well, it, by adding also, a human... Uh, well, you mentioned board games before and game dynamics and, and how you set these things up. And I think it's very interesting, the dynamics of how a game like a board game works in terms of the mass behind it and then how humans interact with it. And then in mass, there's a whole area of game theory, which is pretty much analyzing this and making assumptions about how people behave. And so we were like, well, surely there must be a game theory solution such that all the interested parties are motivated to try and get as close to what is the fairest target score compensation for some definition of fair. Because you could argue there is a fairer score and everyone's got a sense of where it is, but everyone's motivations for choosing that number are very different. It's the sporting equivalent of I cut, you choose. So, you know, got a cake. Uh, how can we make sure we both think we've got half each? It's basically I cut and then you take my mother used to, my, I have exactly. one sister <laughs> three years younger than me and that was what that was my mother's solution to exactly. that problem. And it does generalise to N humans. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you can have I cut, yeah. N minus one, yeah. um, choose. But it gets more complicated. And we were like, that. so we, I don't think we ever fully solved the problem. We, we, we didn't, we didn't. We but working yeah, there's a, there's a, I've, there's a blog on my website about it. I think we should bring in Hannah Fry at this and point. Because she was Hannah part was of also this. There. Some debate as to whether this was the Eastway Fry Parker. I'm pretty sure it was the Parker Fry Eastway. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, anyway, yeah whatever it was. <laughs> but it's up there. You can look it up. Okay, so if you are, are your websites, have, is this one of many? blog solutions you solved the problems of the world and written them in a blog and just left them there or are the uh, i've got a blog, a blog i've got sort of yeah, different categories on it so i've got a cricket blog general sport puzzles blog you know all on my website which blog so, did yeah. the parker fry easter way solution it go on belongs in my cricket blog, the cricket blog. yeah 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 because it 
because it's about cricket. That's, that was my <laughs> thinking. Dera- okay, right. So moving moving on from the cricket, because otherwise we could go down a very long, mm. just like a game of cricket, it could go <laughs> on and on and on for days. And you know what? We're in a studio. It's not going to rain. To cut it off. So, um, Matt, you're going to Edinburgh soon. Is that right? Correct. Tell us about that. I'm not just because it's a wonderful city that I enjoy visiting. That the Don't, this, this, that's such a oh audience audience in Edinburgh, please like me. No, wait, no, 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 the, no. That's because <laughs> and that's close to the truth, and I appreciate. That's because I'm I'm going to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. It's the big fringe, uh, the biggest you know arts festival in the world. Absolutely incredible. And the problem is, everyone just calls it Edinburgh. You're going to Edinburgh. I'm doing it, and the locals get a little bit annoyed. Apart from, they obviously get annoyed because their city gets taken over, but they do get a little bit annoyed that they just use the name of the city as a shorthand for these specific 24 days um, in the calendar. And so I try and be careful. Although it is quite a lot of the year. It's, I a, mean, lot, it's a decent percentage. It's over 10, uh, you know. Over 10. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, anyway, no, carry not on. quite. But anyway, yeah. Um, so if you factor in everything else around it. Anyway, so I'm going up to the Festival Fringe in Edinburgh and uh, doing a show based on my book, Humble Pie. So I'm doing a show called Humble Pie, creatively titled. Frankly, the title was a strong pun game, and that's very important at the Fringe. And so I figured I'm not gonna, I'm not going to top Humble Pie. Uh, yes, I'm I'm currently putting together a stand-up show, which is using all the stories that I found in the book, but particularly the ones where there were either visuals or video or things that have happened since I wrote the book, stuff that I want to continue to talk about or I want to be able to talk about in a format which is not um, a written book. Because I haven't got a blog. I just write one very long blog post <laughs> every couple of years that people have to buy it printed out. Um, and I re- it should be really good fun. And it, it's a strange environment to do it at the Fringe because... How do they respond to maths at the Fringe? Because exactly. it's a comedy festival, right? Bingo. And when I do shows in London, it's a very nerdy audience. Like, they show up and they know what they're in for. Whereas when I'm... I'm like, like, I'm 8.20 in the evening in the Pleasant Stone, for those of you who know the Fringe. Like, I'm right in the thick of the big powerhouse people of comedy. And... I'm there going, oh, how about some maths? And it's kind of a bit of a bait and switch because I'm promising entertainment, but when they come in, I'm going to hit them with maths instead. But the, the wonderful thing about stand-up as an art form, and um, I can mention this safely because if Robin Ince was here hosting this, this would be the end of any other conversation. <laughs> the great thing about stand-up as an art form is you can do whatever you want as long as the audience are enjoying it. And perceive it to be stand-up, arguably. And so I promised them comedy, and it's entertaining enough that people can't demand their money back, but it's... That's it, the bar, is it? That's the bar. <laughs> I set myself high standards. But within that, I can do whatever I want as long as they're finding it interesting. And so I, the challenge is, can I make a funny show about maths, which also has enough interesting maths that people who are very nerdy and come along also find it. But you've been doing this for years. I mean, this is your sort of stock in trade, right? Oh, this this, 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 there's past data to prove this is possible. Does it get, I mean, because I feel in a lot of things, you know, in in the public eye, things come and go and fashions change a bit. Do you feel that maths is on and up as a thing? Because it used to be basically almost a dirty word. You know, if you ask people about maths at school, they 20 years ago, they went, oh, Rob's nodding here. They went, oh, I hated maths at school. That's what they used to say to me. I hate, they hated physics at school. And then it changed about 15 years ago. Yeah. Automatic reaction of oh I I'm a physicist they said oh I hated physics at school it was it was almost 100% reaction and I haven't seen it for 15 years but in maths I feel maybe it lasted a little bit longer it's definitely still there yeah. I mean I, I would say in a formal poll when I tell people like totally out of con like it's the classic the cliche you meet a friend of a friend at a party what do you do 
maths. Oh, I hated maths at school. Mm-hmm. I would um, still say that is the answer more often than not. Yeah. But there's a much greater awareness of the counter-argument. So you talk about 20 years ago, who would one think of might in any way talk about maths and not get lynched? It was Johnny Ball and Carol Vorderman, and that was it. Ian Stewart to a refined crowd, perhaps, but that was a very Radio 4 niche crowd. Now you could find 30 people who are probably well-known names who are talking, you know, from David Spiegelhalter, James Grime on, on YouTube and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, Bobby Seagull, but, Fry, yeah, yeah, exactly, Seagull, exactly. Yeah. The list just is, is huge. And uh, So is that talk- just a list, is that just in the people who know or is it a wider thing? Do you think there's any more accept? Because, you know, with the more we we talk about it, in the modern world is basically runs on maths. That is, that's how that's how you tell the engine how to work, right? And And so if you don't understand maths, you become at least the logic behind it, you become very helpless. Is, do you think there's an appreciation of that? Or is it just so complicated, even getting more complicated, that you just push it away? I, you know, I think there's an awareness, particularly now that everyone's got a smartphone as such. There's this, people have a much more intimate relationship with technology. Like being into technology no longer means you're a bit of a niche nerd anymore. Everyone, a lot of people have a, have a rough sense. And so I feel like there's now a better awareness that there's obviously a lot of mathematics going on, which is making it possible. It doesn't necessarily mean people like it and want to know it themselves, but I think they're probably more aware. But there remains what there's always been this sort of, when the public are talking about maths, the perception and the thing that first comes up is really arithmetic and uh, numeracy and so on. And sometimes the debate gets very fuzzy when people are saying, of course you should be, you know, Math is really important. You'll need it in your lives. And they'll be talking about the abstract side, but then they'll say, and there's your shopping bill as well. And you think, well, that, that is a very different skill So let's we're just talking be clear about. here about, because the maths, maths as a beast, right? Mm. And, and arithmetic, paint out for us a picture of the arithmetic, the numeracy, and then the other things in maths that might people might not immediately associate with maths. And there, of course, there is an overlap. But um, uh, the... I mean the numeracy side. I really like the arithmetic and numeracy side of. This of, is writing of down sums. And yeah, and, and having a sense of numbers or hearing a number quoted and thinking, hang on a sec, how could it be possible? Because there's 60 million people in the country, and if they're giving three million, you know, that's nothing per person, whatever. So just dealing with those numbers and reacting to numbers in the news and and saying, does this make sense? Or someone saying, you know, well, we're sold about. 30,000 of them and they were £9.50 each. So okay, okay, multiplied by 10. Da, da. Okay, well, you've made whatever it is, uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds. You just kind of have a feel for uh, for grappling broadly with, with numbers like that. And that's all based on arithmetic that you learn when you're 10. Um, but you then that, learn a context for it. A lot of that is just not being afraid of the numbers. Mm. A, lot of, a lot of that is obviously being numerate, but then there's just being numerically confident mm. and not being blinded a lot of people, there are numbers they're blinded they check out but a lot of that is just staying calm and working not being afraid to give the numbers a go and a lot of that confidence comes from having gone much further you know often the ability to deal make things really simple as in many things in life is because you know about the complex side and know that in the end you know yeah it might be a cubic equation but in the end you can just multiply by x and it's going to be the same thing you know that that sort of but how does this fit with the modern world so you know when um in the pa- before everyone had phones carrying around with them the whole time which are actually just small computers um 
when it came to splitting the restaurant bill, someone did have to do mental arithmetic. Or if you wanted to work out, you, you did actually have to write it down and do the sums. And now I think people are worse. My perception is that people are a lot worse at mental arithmetic because they don't ever have to do it. They sort of go, it can be done. Mm. Uh, and then they stop. Mm. which is what the mathematicians are doing all the jokes about an engineer, a physicist <laughs> and a mathematician. Yeah. Is the mathematician yeah. says it can be solved and walks away, right? But I like what I like about it is because you got the calculator, before you had to be better at mental arithmetic and that allowed you to solve a certain set of problems. But now even the people may be less good at mental arithmetic because they're armed with the calculator and if they're prepared to use it, and students these days grow up, they're no, no longer do teachers say, Make sure you learn this because you're not going to have a calculator with you all the time. Mm. That's patent, like absolutely not true. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's learn how to use a calculator. And I think there's now a wider range of problems people can solve in everyday life because mm -hmm. they're more confident to tackle a wider range and they're already fluent in using a calculator. It's not limited to what they can definitely do mentally. And you two both spend a lot of time, you know, talking to schools, young people, pupils, like a broader audience in, you know, about maths. How is that? How... If it feels like a campaign in the city, you know, how, how is your campaigning going? Well, I mean, that's kind of the second half of numeracy versus mathematics, because a lot of it is convincing students that math is not just being good at adding up. It's the fact that it's, it, well, the classic is it's thinking skills. It's teaching you how to solve problems logically and puzzles and um and all of that, which is interesting because, I mean, if you ask a mathematician to define maths, it's a pro for, a, for a subject that loves defining its terms. <laughs> Proofs and theorems and mm. lemma number one. But yeah. what is the subject? Um, and everyone's got their own hand-wavy I mean, one that often comes up is patterns, spotting patterns, identifying patterns. And, and, and when certain you know, behaviours lead to a surprising and beautiful, elegant pattern, you know, fractals and the way fractals can get generated, sometimes with, I mean, one of my favourite is a thing called the dragon curve, which is well worth looking up to see how beautiful these things are, which you can achieve, you can get a dragon curve by just taking a strip of paper, folding it in half, and end over end, and folding it in half again, and fold it, keep folding it, and then you unravel this folded thing, and it's, you, every angle is a right angle, you get this beautifully intricate thing which t ends up as a fracture. That is a folded piece of paper with a very good PR agent. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dragon absolutely. Curve. absolutely. <laughs> uh, it, it appears Especially in the, in the era of Game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah so tell us about your book. Is it in the book, Rob? No, no, was it, no I was going to say it's in Jurassic Park. It's in someone else's book. Not in the film, though. Not in the film, it's but fine. it's in the book. Or Every every yeah. 30 pages is another Dragon Curve. More maths in the book than the film. Right, so I did ask you about your book. You're writing a book. I'm writing a book. Uh, called actually called Maths on the Back of an Envelope um, and it's out in the The sad autumn. thing is not only does no one have write down maths anymore they don't have envelopes anymore I know I know in every sense so we did debate We're this but it, yeah. that out the <laughs> um, and, and I, I I'm all in favour of envelopes though more envelopes yeah, yeah. envelopes have just disappeared from the retail price index because and yet everyone has turned out to love the title so you know it just goes to show and actually uh, what is interesting is this notion of having a feel for numbers, what we've been talking about, is absolutely out there, especially in in business world where they say, oh, that's the way we work, and in the engineering world. Those two, um, you know, it's like, oh, and back of envelope, that's the kind of maths we want. I was talking to some civil engineers, university civil engineers the other day, and saying, how do you feel about the math skills of students coming in to your courses? Uh, and they said, oh, generally good. I mean, maths, lots taking maths A-level and getting really strong at, at calculus and things like that. And they said, we do miss that ability to just 
kind of look at a set of figures and say, yeah, that's about a million. Um, so they it's, have to sort I of train really that notice in. that in my students, actually, is the thing that they're not comfortable with is approximation, mm. actually, because all this accuracy is so yeah, easy because yeah, a computer yeah. can calculate it to 16 or 32 yeah. decimal places, whatever it is. Yeah. And actually, what you often need to do is be able to look at it and go, there aren't trees that are 300 meters tall. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of reality check yeah. is actually there's a there's a connection there which seems yeah. does seem to be getting lost. So you, what's what's it what's your book all about? Is it, is it those it sorts of things? It is about those sorts of things and just just building confidence in that whole side and and being playful with it and just looking at real world things. And say, you know, I can I can kind of work that out um, as long as you don't want it to you know five decimal places. So that sort of that sort of and yeah, so it's empowering that that side but also recognizing you know behind it is a lot of the mathematical thinking the understanding and the, the beautiful side is often um buried away and all that background has been helpful in okay so just to finish off i want i'm going to ask you both what is perhaps a hard question or maybe not knowing the two of you mm. um what in the last few days what good bit of maths have you done the good the good little bit of maths Ooh. that's either uh interesting or been useful to you or some little calculation something you well, noticed I've, I've, I've got a story of me attempting a wild bit of maths and not quite panning out. Well, I was doing a talk where there's a demonstration you can do when you're showing a minimal surface where you use soap film because it forms a minimal surface. And I know you're uh, you're a big fan of bubbles, less so foam. But what are you going to do? Uh, and so I have to give in to the tyranny of the soap bubbles. They're not nearly as interesting as the other bubbles. See, exactly. Everybody I know, wants to talk I know, to them. I know you roll your eyes when I talk about soap. You're anyway, like, go on about your soap bubbles. So anyway. <laughs> Um, soap bubbles as a minimal surface. If you get a cube frame, so just like the 12 edges of a cube, like a wireframe, dip it in soap solution, pull it out, you'll get different surfaces inside it. And there's one particular arrangement everyone loves where there's like a bubble suspended in the middle and it's a cube-shaped bubble within what are called Plato's um, laws for, for um, soap film. And uh, that's lovely. I love doing that as a demo, except when you first dip the frame and you pull it out, that's not the minimal surface. It is if you need to trap a volume in the middle, but the actual minimal surface has a square in the middle. It's a flat square. And I was doing the demo, and I was like, I wonder what, what is the ratio of that square to the cube? And I, and I looked around. There wasn't an answer anywhere. I was like, I'll give it a go. So I sat down. I set up the equations for the surface area, and then I minimized them. And it's, it, I was like, oh, it's going to be like root two or something. And it's some terrible, unpleasant number. It's not. It's not. It's not lovely at all. And I've looked it up, and there's nothing online about it. It's there's not. There's no a, elegance it's in not it. That's very sad. Whatsoever. So, but it, it was kind of fun. I enjoyed. Give it a go. I enjoyed setting up the equations for the surface area. I enjoyed finding the minimal point. That, that is plot. a thing, though, isn't it? Sometimes it's not pretty. I remember when we were on tour with Cosmic Shambles in Australia and New Zealand a couple of years ago, and there was we were asking for audience questions, and they gave us a second order differential equation. <laughs> you and I got very excited. And we got very excited because we were like, it's going to have a beautiful thing. We can do this. We can go back in the interval. We solved yeah, this. Yeah. And it was a rotten, It was a mess. It was a terrible... It was a, it was a mess. I think technically they were heckling us. That yeah. was not a nice like, differential equation. To... There, there was a solution, but it was ugly, and it was such a disappointment to both of us. Uh, Rob, what ma what bits of maths have you been doing recently? Okay, well, so because I, I knew I was going on this podcast, and uh, I'd heard that you like rowing as well as badminton. Is that true? Paddling. I paddle Pacific canoes, but I have rowed as well. Oh, okay. Because I, I was thinking, because it reminded me. I was thinking, what's, what's a good row? And so I was going back to the maths of it. So um, uh, in football, um, penalty shootouts uh, used to go 
team one, team two, team one, team two, A, B, A, B, A, B. And it was perceived, this is a disadvantage of all the teams have been going through recently, a disadvantage of the team going second because all the pressure's on them. They could make or break it for their team. So they've changed in some tournaments to the ABBA system where you go A, B, B, A, A, B, B, A. And, it's, uh, uh, and then you can take that even further, A, B, B, A, B, A, A, B, and then keep reversing it again. Something called the 2A Morse. Um, pattern or sequence and it's really lovely anyway it turns out this fairness model applies in a lot of situations including in rowing because and you may have had this experience when you're rowing the thing about a, a classic eight in rowing is it goes a b a b a b so mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, so you have one blade they're not on yes the, the blades on yeah. each side and they're not fully aligned which means there will be a tendency very slightly to to provide, provide a little bit of a talk to the to the boat. So the so just to, to clarify here, you've got eight people down the length of a boat. You have each one has one oar, so it has to point either right or left. Exactly. And the, we're talking about the order in which the rights and lefts are. Because everyone's yeah. rowing on one side only. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you fall out of the boat. Then if you put all your strongest uh, rowers all with their paddles out to the right, you're yeah, going to go, you and go around in circles. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, and the cox is therefore having to straighten the boat out because it's tending to slightly turn in one direction. But you can eliminate this entirely by realigning the boat uh, such that the oars go to the right, then left, left, right. So A, B, B, A. B, A, A, I've never seen anyone row like that. No, there's a few methods that do it uh, that, that apply a, a zero... Um, moment, but but the two A Morse one is the most satisfying because it has a link with with football. But one or two have been tried, and apparently, I think John Barrow at Cambridge University did find that this had added an advantage of I don't know of a second to. I don't think there's any. I, I don't think there's a rule in mm. international rowing that says you have to I row don't. stroke side bow yeah. side stroke side. Bow I think side. the Danes tried one, but it wasn't the ABBA. B A A B, oh. but it could have been. I feel we need we need a rowing club and an experiment to mm. go with that. Mm. So on that thought, I approve. We started with cricket. We're finishing with rowing. Things are only getting better. Um, so I'd like to thank uh, Rob Eastaway and Matt Parker. We're still in the studio here, and for once, Trent Burton, who is the Cosmic Shambles producer, Hello. is not on the other side of a piece of glass making frantic faces at me, uh, or even worse faces at Robin. He's on this side. Yeah, behind your version a of five minutes left is closer to five minutes than Robin's version. I'd be very sorry if that wasn't the case. <laughs> uh, anyway, so you're on this side, and you've got a microphone in front of you and everything, which means you must be a proper person. I know, I'm not just doing admin. Um, since I've been banging on about signals on Science Shambles and Book Shambles for ages, the show we are touring with Footprint Theatre this year, we thought we'd get someone from the show to jump on the podcast as well. So we've got Eve Cowley with us, who is one Hello. of the stars and creators of Signals. Yeah, yes. So, well, what's Signals about? Let's start there. Uh, it's very base. It's just two radio astronomers sitting in a very small room monitoring radio waves, looking for signs of alien contact. So this is a theatre performance and these are characters and you're telling a story through these. And this is a very real thing, right? Because, yeah. you know, I've been in those rooms and astronomers, it seems, sometimes have a very <laughs> lonely life. And yeah. In fact, I did see uh, on the top of um, Big Telescope in Hawaii, they have rewritten the words to Hotel California, but for Hotel Mauna Loa or Mauna Kea, I can never remember which one it is. But... Um, you can check out any time you want, but you can never leave, and that someone has had some long nights. <laughs> yeah, that's well. That's, so that's essentially what the play is. It's 
Um, it sort of skips time over these two characters' lives. They're on the night shift, so they're there every night. Um, over the space of like five, three, two to three years. It and it varies. just, yeah, we <laughs> can't decide. Um, but it just shows little snapshots of like each night or parts of their relationship. Um, yeah. And what's it? What's what's the what made you want to do? What's the big topic here? What what is it you're trying to get at or convey to the audience? Uh, well, we started off. I was just telling Trent actually. We started off researching or used a stimuli of aliens, and then we quickly were researching and found that the most interesting thing about that topic is humans, and not what aliens might be or where they might be. Although that is very interesting, um, but it was more interesting finding out why humans are obsessed or why we search and what we hope to gain from that search. And actually, the play sort of explores what those two characters have lost by searching, but also what they've gained from each other um, and that time that they've spent together. And so what sort of is this? A, is it a comedy? Or is it drama? What sort of thing is this? It's, de- it's <laughs> definitely a comedy. That was because we came across it is at Edinburgh last year in the one of the six-minute down periods that Robin and I had and Mill had. We were in some cafe, I don't remember, and one of your team, it might have been Trish, just came up and gave us a flyer and went, do you want to see it? And, you know, Edinburgh's like, you get 597 flyers every 10 seconds. And we're like, oh, it's a science one. We'll go and, we'll go and see it. And it was just, I just went and saw it and was like, oh, this is actually really good. We should talk to these guys and see if we can do something with it. And part of that, what interested me about it was that there's little nuggets of actual science like buried within the story. And my first thing was like, we could do this with the play followed by different talks of different people talking about the science hidden in this play and make it kind of a tour in a festival shambly thing. And you're doing two? You're doing two of the post-signals things, I think? Latitude yes. and Blue Dot? Yep. Yeah. Mm. So that's kind of... And it fitted with that, the whole comedy and science mashup thing that we pertain to be doing <laughs> in some manner. So um, how, so are all the performances followed by some kind of discussion? Is that, that's the Cosmic Shambles combination, is it? All the festival ones are. There are a few other dates that we haven't slash can't announce yet that are like theatre art centre places, but all the festival ones are the ones that announced and aren't announced, uh, yeah, are followed by different talks and panels. So at Latitude, we're doing, I think it's called Signals from Space, where we're trying to find or talking about where life might be found beyond Earth. So it's you and Robin and Kevin Fong and Susie Ember. And then we've got you and Matthew Cobb and Chris Lintot at uh, Blue Dot. And uh, our first performance, actually, first festival performance is this coming Thursday, June 6th, we're at Cheltenham Science Festival. A show there is going to be followed by a talk by, we're quite excited, that uh, 2018 Cavalry Prize winner, Avina Fleur van Dishoek, is coming over to give a talk. Uh, astrophysicist, astrochemist, uh, expert in all things extraterrestrial. She is going to be uh, with us at Cheltenham. And then... And various other people I can't reveal at other so places. So lots, lots of exciting space stuff. So when you started out doing this, did you realise you were going to learn all this space science or did that kind of come no, along? it a... definitely came. Well, I'm not confident in saying we had a lot of great science in the first version. <laughs> Cosmic Jambles have definitely helped us sort of up that side of it. Um, but yeah, we tried, we, we tried to get 
to learn as much as we could and put that in. Um, but as I said before, we're all sort of from arty, more arts and humanities backgrounds, so it was a bit of a struggle for so us all. So what surprised you? I mean, looking at the lives of astronomers, modern yeah. astronomers, who don't do what, you know, 300 years ago, it was much more kind of pure in a way that you went with your telescope and you wrote down numbers in the little book. What, 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 it, like, what stood out to you about the way modern astronomers work? Did it surprise you? I think... You? We all saw the opportunity for it to be quite funny because there are these two characters, or we made these two characters, their life, the realities of it was, was quite dull, or it is in the play. I don't want to say that about everyone <laughs> who's an astronomer's life. I think somebody life. famous said that science is 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. Yeah. So this yeah. is the perspiration and we're the, talking about. The reality of their life was sort of dull, but it was set with this huge backdrop of what if, what's out there, we want to look for it. There's this huge cosmos universe and these two tiny people who most of their conversations are do you want a cup of tea or do you want a jaff cake or oh, i couldn't sleep last night and that was just quite funny to us i think you make it sound like a sort of you know a marriage that's gone on for a few decades it, too uh, long it is, yeah. it is that's what it is basically <laughs> there is a real kind of there's a line in the play no spoilers but um where they talk about when you think of being an astronomer as a kid, this isn't ever what you imagine, that you think, like everyone, it's just going to be looking at the stars. And I remember talking to you once, years ago, after you'd just come back from one of your amazing ocean voyages, and I, well, now I've got to spend six months just going through terabytes of you know, zeros and ones of data, and that's 99% of this job. I'm still going through some of that data <laughs> yeah, as well. <laughs> this was about six years ago, yeah. I think. Yeah, there's a real, like, it's nice to explore that side of it, but do it in a in a kind of fun way. A friend of mine once said about a topic, I think he was a linguist, but he said it's it's really boring to study, but it's really interesting to talk about. And that, that idea of science just taking a lot of... Very, we, it's careful and it's hard and it takes a long time. And, and, and I guess, but the thing is, it's still done by humans and that's what the play presumably plays on is that you can't separate the science from the humans who are doing it. Yeah, and they can't... Yeah, especially on a night shift, I guess. But also we've spoken before about the similarities of that with making theatre or art generally. You don't really know what you're chasing and it's really exciting when you get it, but then you're like, oh, how do I take this forward? And Which is exactly why when I did two and a bit years of science at university and then left to do whatever this job is, it's going, I'm not doing it. That's for you to do. I'm not, I'll tell people about your data. I'm not going to sit and analyse it. But the ideas are available to everyone. I mean, that's part of it. Is that the, the whole benefit, the whole point about shared science is that um, you only have to have two people dealing with this bit of data, but everyone shares the benefits. So, yeah. so that although they're doing a job which might be boring now, you can hold in your head this bigger idea that everyone will be able to use this if yeah. you get it right. <laughs> and I think there's two characters have different viewpoints on that, and that's where the where the drama is. Yeah, your Conflict character's is. a lot more consigned to the, yeah. oh, my God, this will never end kind <laughs> of side of things. what she's given up to be there, and if it will ever come to fruition, those... Um, Which is a lot of scientists spend a yeah. lot of time thinking and about that. And the other character <laughs> is much more, but this is this is about... Search the search defines us, she says in the play. So the scientists and that have come to see it so far, without giving anything away, what what have their reactions been? Have they said, "Oh my God, that's my life," or have they? Well, do they think you've made it up? Some of them, some of the nice comments we've had, they've all been nice. But somebody said it, um, it really aptly sums up research and that the excitement of getting something or thinking you have something versus the the perspiration, the hours of slaving away over 
data and the boredom as well. It's sometimes it is like you've got an angel and a demon on your shoulders. It's almost like that you've got the one little voice that is going, wee, it's exciting <laughs> and it's science, and the other little voice that goes, if I see one more well, decimal place... Yeah. I will kill someone. <laughs> yeah, I think some research... There are elements that some research scientists will have traumatic flashbacks, I think, in the middle of it. Well, it sounds... So tell us... It sounds fabulous. So tell us again when, where people can see it and uh, where, is there anything online they can look at before they see it? Are there any trailers online? Uh, Just yeah, cosmicshambles.com slash signals has got all the dates we've announced at the moment and all the festivals and we'll keep updating that with um, where and when it's going throughout the rest of the year. So, very exciting if you want to know what the lives of two astro- what what the human side behind two astronomers sitting in a room is like. This sounds like essential watching, so signals. Go and look at the Cosmic Shambles website and go and watch the play. Sounds fabulous. Do you want to do the admin? Do some, do some admin at the end instead of More me admin. having to do it. Have we not already? The same admin. Yeah, but then we can tack it on at the end here if it doesn't work on the other one. Okay. So, this is admin of admin. How exciting, listeners. You know that thing about the sitting in a dark room, repeating things? That you <laughs> Normally the admin's just me by myself in my home studio. This is a novelty. Do it again. Right, <laughs> so uh, you can support the Cosmic Shambles Network by pledging as little as $1 a month at patreon.com. Or more if you'd like. Or more, yeah, there's always more as an option. Look at this, my admin is getting heckled here. <laughs> patreon.com slash bookshambles. Or you can get something exciting from the online shop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop. Uh, and there's all sorts of goodies there, which vary a little bit with time. So have a look at what's there now. We will be doing lots of live stuff coming up, including signals at Cheltenham, Latitude, Blue Dots. So you'll be able to uh, see the things we've been talking about and lots of other things besides. Look at the dates for all of that. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People and the Compendium of Reason is coming up in December. Don't book it now because tickets are going to go quickly. And all the other goodies that are part of CosmicShambles.com can be found on the website. So podcasts, documentaries, blogs, all of the live stuff, lots of bits and pieces. It's well worth exploring. Uh, so, CosmicShambles.com. Live admin, because it literally went on sale while I was sat out there while you are recording the last one. We're doing Book Shambles live at the Albert Hall again. July 7th at the Albert Hall, we're doing two episodes with Robin and Josie. Josie will definitely be there this time, unless she has another baby miraculously in the next month or so. Uh, July 7th, Albert Hall, Elgar Room, RoyalAlbertHall.com for tickets. Thank you very much for listening. Check out all the things Helen mentioned at the end there. We will see you next time for another episode of Science Shambles. Helen hosting again and our guests. Join us next time, Helen hosting again, where we'll be talking about geodesy, mapping the Earth from space, and if we can cure ageing. Have a great week. CosmicShambles.com for all of your curious needs. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. 